Welcome back to another episode of A&D Do I D. We are your hosts, Ashley Grigsby. And David Rayburn, back for some more infectious disease. Yep, we're here to do brain and neurologic infections, right? That's what we're doing? We are. Last time I think we covered the heart infections, so I think we're going to just hone in on some uh, systems-based infections moving forward with A&D Do I D. First up, I think we can all... The first thing you think of, really, when you think of brain infections is meningitis. Yeah, right? I, I think it's got to be, right? I mean, yeah. it is an itis of the meninges, so the brain, essentially. And it's probably the most common. I don't have statistics, but it's probably the most common brain infection, probably. I think that's probably a reasonable assessment as well. Um, you know, we're going to talk about some of the more nitty-gritty of brain infections that you at least have to think about for the boards, but certainly less common than meningitis. I mean, meningitis is that that classic, you're coming in, you've got somebody with fever, headache, neck pain. Um, they can have all the other URI-type symptoms as well. Um, they can have vomiting and diarrhea, but if you see fever, headache, neck pain, you have to think about meningitis, and you have to consider that on your differential and work it up. So we previously, in uh, way back when, I think probably episode one or two, talked about the most common causes of meningitis. So we're not going to belabor those points, but we will just kind of break it up again. So your neonates, uh, you really need to think about GBS, listeria, and E. coli as your causes. Most neonatal meningitis is going to be bacterial. Now, when you get into young children and adolescents, you get a lot of the viral meningitis that starts to come into play. But still, if you're if you're thinking about young children, you're definitely going to still have um, E. coli in there. But then you're going to add in strep pneumo, Neisseria meningitis. Yeah, so strep pneumo definitely, and then some of the weird stuff uh, like rickettsia um, and Borrelia as well. But Really, they're, they're going to harp on the GBS, Listeria, and E. coli for the neonatal meningitis, and then it, it definitely gets broader um, as you get into your older kids. They do want you to know complications of meningitis. So think about the, you know, the meninges are irritated, so what could potentially happen with that? So seizure, right? You can definitely have seizure, uh, something going on with a child presenting with meningitis, um, you can see focal neurodeficits, uh, you can have hemiparesis, they can have visual field deficits. So obviously, again, you're, you have fever, if your, your brain or your question stem is giving you fever and neurodeficits or neurofindings, then you certainly have to consider meningitis there. There is also something that they want you to know as far as SIADH is concerned. Again, when the, the brain is injured, sometimes your, your salts can get off balance. So SIADH is a risk for meningitis. So you need to make sure that you're keeping an eye on the urine output and electrolytes. Another favorite of the boards is if there are any kind of focal neurologic signs, what's something you need to do, Ashley, before you consider your lumbar puncture? You know, you should probably head CTM so that when you put the needle in their back, they don't herniate their brainstem because it's not great if that happens. Yeah, you, you don't want to give them their pressure release valve downstream from the uh, brain. That That is not an ideal scenario. No, it is not. The You know, again, from we can kind of talk a little bit more 
the bacteria in young children and adolescents that typically cause meningitis are also vaccine preventable bacteria. So you do see more viral causes and then some of the weirder stuff like we talked about, like rickettsia, Borrelia as well. So just keep that in mind. If they give you an unvaccinated status in your question stem, uh, then they may be pointing towards a more common bacterial cause. But that's why we read the question stems and that's why you break it down because they're going to give you the information that you need to answer the question. Perfect. Workup. I was going to say workup, obviously LP, right? Yeah. We're, we're going to do an LP. Um, I think it's beyond the scope of this to really talk about all of the, you know, different stuff uh, as far as glucose, protein, cell count, all that stuff. But you need to do a lumbar puncture. You need to start antibiotics. And then wait out the cultures and admit them, basically. Yep. Disposition, admission. Love it. Love it. All right. So that's meningitis. Um, we kind of talked a little bit about um, some of the viral stuff, which leads us into another uh, brain infection, and that's encephalitis, which uh, the good Dr. Grigsby has become an expert on based on her location, which kind of surprised me. So I'm excited to hear a little bit about what she's had to go through with her new encephalitis, newfound encephalitis. Well, here's the deal. I live in Arizona. Some of our listeners I'm sure live here as well. And um, we're going to talk about encephalitis next, which uh, basically I have seen way more than I ever thought I would see in the last couple of months. So what happened here in Arizona was we had a very heavy monsoon summer, very, very heavy. And we got an obscene amount of mosquitoes because of all the rain. And because of all the mosquitoes, we have had a huge surge in West Nile. I think we actually, uh, at some point this in the last few months, have been the number one area for West Nile, uh, like in the world. I Don't quote me on any of that, but it's really, really high. We're seeing several, a shift, which is crazy. Um, and so, yes, encephalitis has now become this thing that I have to know about. So encephalitis, I kind of think about it basically as meningitis with like mental status changes, which isn't a hundred percent correct, but it's close enough. So, you know, a lot of times they'll present you with like a febrile kid who has maybe a seizure and you're like, oh, it's a febrile seizure, but the kid never gets back to baseline. And that's part of what we talk about when we talk about febrile seizures is that these kids have to be back to their baseline in order for you to like treat them as just like a simple febrile seizure. Because uh, if they're really not getting back to baseline, you really got to worry about encephalitis. So things that cause encephalitis. This child just wants to talk. Guys, listen, I'm trying really hard, but I got this nine-month-old who won't stop talking behind me, so I'm going to cut out most of them, but if you hear any, that's who it is. <laughs> that's fine. This is a pediatric podcast. She's cute. So the biggest things on encephalitis, West Nile is an arbovirus, which just uh, you know talks about being car carried by insects. So arbovirus, uh, we think about St. Louis virus, West Nile virus, all those kind of weird things that you think, oh, I'm never going to see, like I thought, oh, I'll never see. Yeah, apparently... They exist. So those are arboviruses. Then there's enteroviruses. These are more like human-to-human enteroviruses. We, we see these like in other kids. They don't always cause encephalitis, but they can cause encephalitis, which is kind of the point. The big one is herpes encephalitis, which we all have kind of, you know, if a kid comes in and you're worried about meningitis and they have a seizure, we always cover with acyclovir until we make sure they don't have herpes because that can be uh, really, really devastating clinically. 
Um, and then mumps encephalitis, which we don't really see, but apparently mumps can also cause it. I have not yet seen that, but that's because of vaccinations. Um, but I guess it's something to consider in an unvaccinated person. There's really no treatment, so except for supportive care. Now, the treatment of encephalitis, really most of these are just supportive care. In the meantime, you're going to treat with antibiotics until you find the cause because it still could be bacterial meningitis, um, even if it ends up being some viral later. Yeah, I mean, how often do you see it? It's just meningoencephalitis, right? So they just lump them together. Exactly. But I do agree that is typically how I think, at least for a board type question, is if they're throwing that altered mental status in there, they're looking more for at least an encephalitis cause or want you to recognize that this is probably an encephalitis. And oftentimes for boards, they're going to give you some like, oh, it's the summertime or like some crap like that, because that's just kind of how some of these uh, end up being, because a lot of them are vector born. Exactly. And, and again, that is another board tip is if they're giving you the time of year in your question stem, that matters. They're actually interested in that. Uh, next would be like when the infection kind of settles into one area and that would be a brain abscess. Yeah, so I mean brain abscesses they're they're going to have more specific neurologic findings typically. It may look a little like meningitis, but you're going to get focal neurologic deficits. They may describe papilledema uh, on exam as well. One of the classic presentations for a brain abscess is they'll give you a history of sinusitis, but then the patient now has severe vomiting and headache, um, and they want to kind of clue you in that this could be a deep space brain infection. So to diagnose a brain abscess, typically that's going to involve neuroimaging, whether that be CT or MRI. Most of these are going to come up as uh, on CT, and ring-enhancing lesion is definitely something that they're going to talk about for CT findings. So if you see ring enhancing lesion, then you need to think about brain abscess. Should we talk about Potts puffy tumor from brain abscesses? Oh, we, Look we at can that. talk about You know, Potts I just published tumor. a paper on this. You didn't even know that, did you, Rayburn? I didn't. I almost uh, had to take my child to the emergency room for Potts puffy tumor, but it turns out he just gets ridiculous swelling when he gets bit by mosquitoes, <laughs> but it happened to be right in the middle of his forehead, and it, the swelling was not improving as rapidly as I wanted it to. <laughs> well, that actually sucks, actually. <laughs> but yeah, so but, Potts puffy tumor is where you yeah. get, you're getting osteomyelitis of the frontal bone and subperiosteal abscess. Um in the, in the frontal area. So you, you, you get that. If you think of a puffy tumor on the forehead, that's exactly what it looks like. And usually the question stem will involve, and the real life presentation will involve chronic uh, rhinosinusitis um, or a severe sinusitis with now this facial swelling that you need to consider on your differential. So as always, bonus information on A and D do ID because we both have ADHD and cannot keep our thoughts straight for the, the life of us. <laughs> it's okay. That's the, it, it's fine. The listeners know this about us. It's no big deal. I did find it was interesting when I was uh, reading up on brain abscesses that um, kids with cyanotic heart disease um, and pulmonary disease are actually at increased risk for developing brain abscesses. So that may be in your question stem too, is they may give you some pertinent medical history that want to clue you in that this could be a brain abscess. 
obviously we're concerned for bacteria here so you're going to be using uh, antibiotics um, usually it's going to be broad spectrum antibiotics uh, I doubt that they're going to ask you specifically which antibiotic to use and then you're going to follow your culture and there, there could be some surgery or uh, IR guided drainage which will help you um, narrow your spectrum in coverage too but if you're considering this broad spectrum and then narrow as cultures become available just like all infections and then obviously get your uh, neurosurgical colleagues in in uh in on it just in case they need to go out go in and wash that out or whatever they do that's above my pay grade indeed it is i am definitely calling my neurosurgical colleagues to get that involved um all right so uh another one that we need to talk about is transverse myelitis I love this one. I mean, I'm not in real life, but it's a very interesting thing. Do you want to tell us about it, Ashley? I don't know. Well, do I? That's a good question. Okay, so uh, transverse myelitis. Yes, I'm going to talk about it now. Transverse myelitis is basically like myelitis from an infection. Um, And oftentimes it's like viral or like post-viral. It usually happens like not... It's not usually during the infection, but it's more of like a after the infection. And it's from lymphocytes kind of going into that area and demyelinating the area um, from inflammation. They often present with kind of sudden onset of paralysis. I'm just going to tell you this case I had just literally a couple weeks ago that ended up being from West Nile. Shocking. Um, a lady just came in, you know, I just can't move my left leg. She actually looked fine, she, but she really could not move her left leg. What's funny is she, she let that go for a few days. And then finally decided maybe I should go into the hospital because I can't move my leg. And she ended up having that. Um, And it's really interesting. So, you know, you can do a CSF tap and they will often have increased uh, cells. Um, But really the the real money is the MRI and it will show swelling of the cord. Anything else you got on that? No, I mean, unfortunately, it is typically going to be supportive care. um, And there's not a whole lot to do for it. Uh, which stinks, but I don't think I have anything else. So, the one that it was not cl- included in the outline, but uh, certainly worth discussing. Uh, it's a, a little bit outside of the brain, but so is myelitis, but epidural abscess. Oh, yes, we should do that. Good, good one. This is a good one for, like, fever and back pain. So if you get those two together, then you certainly need to consider spinal epidural abscess on your... Um, differential. Uh, You can get some paresthesias, you can get paralysis with this as well, but it's usually going to be localized back pain and fever. Once it starts to uh, grow, then you can get more of your neuro findings. Um, You may see decreased rectal tone, Um, you can see reduced uh, sensation in the lower extremities, that saddle anesthesia, you can get increased reflexes, and that's basically as the epidural space is filling with pus, it's causing compression and you're getting these neuro findings. This is definitely a surgical emergency. Once you've made this diagnosis, you absolutely need your spinal colleagues to come and get this drained. You're going to start broad-spectrum antibiotics um, while you're waiting for this, but definitely surgery is no delay here. Classically, IV drug users are going to be the most susceptible. Uh, Thankfully, that is not a huge percentage of our population in pediatrics, but it still may come up on the boards. Um, other risks are 
uh, dental abscesses um, and kids with uh, central venous catheters. They can get hematogenous spread and then they can settle into a spinal epidural abscess. But main thing to think about is fever and back pain. At least keep it on your differential. Uh, and as far as antibiotics are concerned, it's typically going to be staph, so anything that's anti-staphylococcal. And just make sure whatever you pick crosses the blood-brain barrier. Listen to Bug Juice, you'll learn more. Crushing it. All right, I mean, I think that is a good uh, review of the itises of the brain and spinal cord. What do you think? Sounds great. Don't miss these questions. Right. We'll catch you all next time.